creeds and criticism meet. of Reference Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Allison. And thank you for joining us today. We are re-recording our episode. Uh, originally, uh, we recorded this episode about two weeks ago, and it went about as well as... It was as, horrible. Well, it was as, horrible. We w- were so scattered, and in the middle, someone... We got a call that someone... Um, close to especially Nick had died, yeah. and there was other stuff going on, and we just decided to redo it. It was about as uh, coherent as a Trump rally, so... Well, and it actually worked out, because yep. I got, like, a ton of new, like, interpretive insights into this passage, just in time for this re-recording. Well, we will get to that, but first, yeah. our roadmap. Uh, what have we been up to, and what are we sipping today, Allison? Yes, um, so the roadmap, um, first, we'll be going over... Um, our my freedom from the curse <laughs> um then i will cover romans 5 mm-hmm. um and then we will discuss its implications for gender if mm. there are implications yes but first what are we sipping the most important thing everyone wants to know what are we sipping today my favorite johnny walker black the favorite drink of christopher hitchens whom uh i don't know if i've told you guys i got his autograph he uh, debated, was it William Lane Craig at, yep, Biola? at Biola? Yep, that was the weekend we actually met. Like, seriously met. Like, Really? Yep. Yep, that was that Aww. big debate. And so let me see if Chris Hitchens wrote me anything nice. No, he just crossed out his name and wrote it in handwriting. All right, never mind. Well, so, that's kind of cool. That's yeah. a little poetic. We yeah. go Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. So we are sipping Johnny Walker Black, the drink of choice of Christopher Hitchens. Called yes, it. because I don't have to have beer anymore because Joe has freed me from this curse, <sighs> anyway. having found a beer that I like. Anyway, so I've been working with the apocalyptic Paul and all the fun stuff entailed with that, uh, specifically reading people like J. Lou Martin, uh, what's his face, Douglas Campbell, and all these different authors who are basically arguing that Paul is an apocalypticist. And not only that, Paul views God as invasive in the incarnation, kind of invading the cosmos again. And it's this weird kind of view of the disjunctive view of salvation history and the apocalyptic Paul, where salvation history is kind of cut off or severed from the story of Israel and God is doing something entirely new. Oh, okay. That, so it's dis- it's like the um, physical reality is disconnected from like a spiritual reality. It's based on, in a sense, cosmological dualism. Mm. And so, and mm-hmm. that's how they argue it. Now, that's not how I've read it. And that's how in my final paper under Marion My Thompson here at Fuller, uh, I argue that the story of Israel is revealed in the apocalyptic nature of the incarnation. So essentially it's a both and versus a disjunctive, supersessionistic kind of thing. Amen. Yep. But, and I think that comes up in, in one's five, too. Yep. <laughs> and so that's what I've been working on. I want to do potential doctoral work on this subject. Hint, Mike. Hint, hint. <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, that's what I've been reading, and it's a lot uh, of fun. Where, where have you gotten all this time to, like, do research, Nick? None. No, literally It's almost no like you were, I don't know, doing something before, and now you're, you're Oh, done? yes, yes, yes. I finished uh, all my coursework here at Fuller for my MAT, so I'm... I think I'm officially done. I don't know if there's some paperwork or anything I need to fill out still. I, I He's suspe- done. I suspect David Kiefer will email me in the next day or two. 
He's now finished his time at Fuller. Yep, I am officially done with coursework. And assuming Marianne likes my, my paper. And he's very smart. And so I think no matter what happens with this class, um, he's going to probably make out with a 3.9. Make out with a 3.9? That's kind of Okay, well, weird. he's being sassy right yes, now. Yes, I am. But being what sassy. You can chalk it up to Christopher Hitchens. Don't blame drink. Christopher Hitchens for this. I will blame Christopher Hitchens for anything. He's dead. He can't do anything about it. Oh. So, well, all right. So what have you been up to, Allison? Um, I've been meditating, um, on, like levitating, meditating oh, okay. on, um, scripture and praying. And I know usually I have a book to share, but, um, well, you are sharing about the book. That's true. The book of books. Jesus juke. Um, <laughs> so I've actually had a passage that I've been meditating on since my time at Biola, mm. uh, with Ed Curtis in intro to old Testament. Mm. And I just keep meditating on this passage, um, throughout my life. So, um, and it's specifically with this theme of being still. Mm. Um, and so this kind of thing comes back and forth every now and then. Um, I'll, I'll just kind of summarize some of the, or read some of it. Um, okay. It's God is our refuge and strength, mm. a very present help in trouble. Mm. Therefore we will not fear though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. And it goes into basically, um, poetic catastrophe. <laughs> and the idea is God has done things in the past. Hmm. So it's okay. Don't worry. Hmm. Um, he's going to win. Here's the, here's the part that gets key. All right. Be still and know that I am God. Hmm. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Hmm. And recently my passages have been expanded. Hmm. So I found other passages with this be still theme. Okay. And some of them I'm really struggling with in terms <laughs> of, uh, it's that part of growing into the word of God, hmm. uh, and not so much a, just a, do I understand what this says on the page? It's not a mere cognitive exercise. That's right. Gotcha. So one of them was in Psalms 37, seven, hmm. and it's really the whole Psalm that I've been struggling with. Also Exodus 14, 13 through 14 recently. Oh, gosh. Um, so a lot of my learning experience, um, has been more directed towards God entering into suffering with me hmm. and has not been so much oriented towards the liberation in the moment. Hmm. Let's put it that way. Okay. Not, but the thing is both are in scripture. Yeah. So sometimes scripture portrays um, a, a person in their helplessness with no hope of escape. Hmm. And other times God says, I'm going to come after uh, those that are hurting you, or I'm going to change your circumstances drastically. It could take a variety of forms. Yeah. Uh, so take your pick. <laughs> Exodus 14, 13 through 14 is the recent one. The children of Israel and Moses are standing in front of the Red Sea, waiting for it to part. Just waiting. Just yeah. waiting. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, stand your ground and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. Hmm. And I was going through something and I got this verse and God does this sneaky thing sometimes with me. And it's usually for spiritual formation where hmm. he'll repeat a theme or a verse over and over and over again until I listen. Hmm. Uh, once I didn't listen and it got literally pounded and someone pinned it onto my front door 
<laughs> without knowing I was, like, struggling with this passage. Hmm. So I stopped and listened. Uh, so this happened again, and I was just, what is going on here? And let's just say it unsettled me a bit. Hmm. Uh, and we'll see what God does. Maybe it will be not a literally everyone dies in the sea, and maybe it'll be a redemption story, but we'll see. <laughs> so I'm waiting, and this whole point is just to be still, knowing that God is the God of the universe, even though circumstances seem otherwise. And sometimes when he sets out for you to do something, he's going to make a path. Yeah. So God has acted and we're seeing and waiting to see what he does next. And if maybe the Egyptians want to follow you into the sea after seeing it part, because they think their gods are going to save them, and God of Yahweh who just parted the sea isn't to be listened to, then so be it. Yep. Hopefully not, though. Hopefully not. All right. So, Romans 5. Yay. The big text that you've spent months and months and years on, apparently. Uh, well, not years on this particular text, but I've studied Romans 5 a lot. Mm -hmm. All right, so lead us, guide us, teach us. All right, so I'll start by reading 5, 1 through 5. And I'll be skipping through the NASB and the CEB. Okay. I'll be skipping around, throwing in my own translation occasionally. All right, sounds good. Lead Such us. is life. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Hmm. So we've just come off of uh, chapter four, and the idea is we have peace with God, and it's because of the triumph of grace and the reconciling power of God's love in Christ by the cross. Hmm. And so now into verse two, it's about our access by faith. And this is what enables us to boast in the hope of God's glory. Hmm. Now, here's the interesting part, and I actually think this gets into the key of this whole passage, especially with the Adam-Christ parallel. Okay. Um, and basically, this uh, hope in God's glory is intrinsically tied to ethics, and that's love by the Spirit. Hmm. Basically, this passage is telling us that somehow even our tribulation produces the hope that doesn't disappoint or hmm. points towards it. Yeah. And specifically, verse 5, um, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, what's this exact connection? Um, how does our how do our problems exactly produce hope? Uh, basically, our concrete manifestations of the spirit in love are pointing to the resurrection. Hmm. We suffer under a world that's under the power of darkness. I'm using some Ephesians five, yeah, um, and Ephesians totally, um, i.e., in this case, Adam. Hmm. But our actions are those of light. So, what does it look like in practice? So love isn't just a private thing that we just have internally that is never visible. Hmm. Rather, um, it's spelled out more for us in 12, Romans 12. All right. And I'll say without reading everything, our bodies them, it, themselves become sacrifices like Christ. And you can see that in 12, 1 through 2. Hmm. Um, so that our we are, we ourselves are actually oriented towards a different telos. 
And in verse 2, where it says, um, well, we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing, and CEB says mature. Um, that word mature is actually complete or consummate. It's actually teleon. Yep. Perfection. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just that. Um, our characters are conforming to a very different um, natural pattern. Yeah. And so it tells us not to be conformed to the patterns of this world in verse 2, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So this is actually, a, the world wants us to be patterned. They want It wants our lives to look a certain way. Yeah. Um, but God has other plans. And our natural disposition, our natural pattern is, is different. Uh, CEB says this is your appropriate priestly service. That word is for priestly service is actually logic king. Um, and that's a rational... A ra kind of this is the rational or what we're suited towards. Yeah. So I, I think more what we're naturally, our, our natural dispositions become other than what would be natural for the world, which is self-preservation. Oh, okay. So back to Romans 5. In regards to our suffering, we can take pride even in our problems because they're connected to the hope of God's glory. Hmm. They become part of the process of shaping us into the people of the resurrection. And this is looking ahead towards Romans 8. Hmm. If you want to skip ahead. Um, being in the Spirit is basically more than just, again, this internal disposition. It's It entails the life of the physical body and, uh, conf and the changing of our character. Hmm. The two are not separated. And so here in verse 5, it speaks of a hope tied to the love of God that's poured out in our hearts so that the grace of God transforms how we see, even I think in our, our darkest situations, um, we see Christ in them. Hmm. It's not cheap, but it's a costly transforming grace through faith. Hmm. And this grows out of the sacrifice of Christ, yes, but it's also our own blood and tears, frankly. Yeah. Um, we can see our own suffering, and we can see this in, our, in the cultivation of God's love, and so that our problems, I think, become a point of pride, specifically because they're connected to Christ and what he did. So now the next thing is the suffering of Christ. And this is what's animating the, our own suffering having meaning. Yeah. So now I'm going to read 5, 6, six through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul's just launched us into this all-consuming hope and saying this is even going to change how you see your circumstance and your suffering now. Yeah. Why? It's because of the suffering of Christ. It's the basis for our suffering having meaning. Um, it's the basis for our suffering cultivating hope within us as we conform to God's character because um, we're able to evidence Christ's work concretely. Uh, I think at, in, in the backdrop of all of this, Paul is trying to give a different basis for ethics that's uh, different from the law. Uh, before everything was based in the law of Moses. Mm -hmm. That was the, distinct, the distinguishing marker. He's saying, no, there's actually a different basis now, and it's Christ. It's the work of Christ, and it's love in the Spirit. The love in the Spirit is the concrete manifestation. So 
this goes back again to love is something that's demonstrated. And mm. for our purposes, it's not private. Uh, Christ is the one that went before us. He died even for his enemies. Now, this work made a pathway, I think, between our state, which is um, the doom that we're destined to for our evil, and the natural consequences that come from God from that. Hmm. Um, but it's not just a path that Christ has created out of the evil state of wrath. Um, he's actually created a path into new life. So hmm. the reconciling with God brings about a change in heart that I think enables us to see our own suffering and our own enemies um, through the lens of God's hope. So now we get to verses 12 through 18, and this gets into more of the basis for the contagious hope in Jesus Christ that allows us to see this suffering. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for now, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from transgression, resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from the transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of the righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. All right, so now we're getting close to the Adam-Christ parallel that everyone's been waiting for. But in verse 12, we're stopped by Dia Tauto. Um, the problem is we don't know what this refers back to. Um, there's no particular referent. Uh, it's easily matched grammatically with all sorts of stuff, um, or it's not readily matched with anything. Yeah. It can even be a block of text. Um, I like Cranfield's interpretation of wherefore, um, hmm. because it points to uh, kind of coming off of what immediately came before, and that's 1 through 11. Yeah. So I think it's best to think of the start of verse 12 as wherefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. And so now... Verse 12, I'm going to actually try to map out this section because unfortunately, as with all contentious texts, they're usually horribly complicated. Uh, yeah, that's usually how it works. Yeah. Especially with English translations. Yeah, and surprise, like just like German, uh, Greek sometimes doesn't even put periods in things, so you can go on forever sometimes. Yep. You have a paragraph that's uh, with no period and all sorts of interesting, crazy constructions, but... In this case, um, verse 12, it's kind of, this whole thing is framed as a just as, so also scheme. Hmm. So verse 12 uh, starts a protodices, and it's kind of a, a subordinate clause of a conditional statement. So it's the just as part of the whole thing. Hmm. And then it digresses for five verses. Uh, and then verse and within that uh, 15 through 17 there's three contrasts between Adam and Christ. Hmm. Uh verse 18a summarizes this huge digression and then when we get to verse 18b we get the apotheses. Uh and that's the so also part of the whole scheme. So just as verse 12 so also <laughs> resumes all the way down in 18b. Well, you know, lucky us. Yep. 
And then verse 20 through 21, you finally get your conclusion with the triumph of grace that we saw the implications of. So let's get into this. Verses 12 through 14 is basically showing how we're in Adam. And the point here is the universal scope of condemnation and the universal scope of salvation in Jesus Christ. And if you want to find out what my exact views are in terms of universalism versus universal exit to salvation, I have a whole talk on our blog. Yep, we'll link it in the show notes. But for now, some of the ways that it's showing the universality and the universal scope, and in this case, it's specifically tied to the whole Jew and Gentile issue, uh, is you have anthropos that's used, not an air. And what that means is whenever you see... In our English, oftentimes, uh, let's see, man, 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 death spread to all man, you know, because of the man, Jesus Christ. It doesn't say man, an heir. It says anthropos, humanity. It's not, humanity. As, it's not as linguistically precise as if it were to say on air. Right. It's, well, it's, it's, it's more expansive, frankly. It's yeah. talking about humankind, in this yeah. case, Jew and Gentile, not males. Yeah. And for some reason, we like to zero in on somehow... Ah, two males are covered here. Hence, yeah. it's all about Adam's federal headship in such a way defined that somehow there's this weird gender scheme that goes back to our views on gender. Yeah, anyway. Anyway, we'll um, get But no, that. it's universal scope of uh, salvation offered and also uh, sin. Hmm. So, and again, the function here is to give a basis for ethics apart from the law. Yeah. Uh, the point is death reigned. Um, Adam is an inclusive figure that serves to illustrate mutual bondage of both Jews and Gentile. Uh, sin is a problem for both, in other words. Yeah. And we see this, uh, and you know, with sin, death. Yeah. And we see this again in Romans 7 too. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll go, I'll skip over to Romans 7 because this might actually help to clarify a little bit of what he's thinking. All right. So starting in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So it's Paul trying to say, hey, I, I think the law is good and everything. Yeah. But it doesn't do what you think it's going to do. It doesn't even form that basis that you think it does, even back then. And again, I think this is a prosopopoia passage. That's chapter four. And what that means is a voice and character. Speech and character, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so back in... Romans 5, we saw that Adam was the literary figure reference. Yep. And so he's the literary figure in Romans 7. But some interesting things to note for our purposes in terms of gender is there, I believe, Eve's here implicitly. Um, oh, and yeah. So first, why I think Adam is in view? He's the figure that was alive apart from the law. There's a singular commandment, which... He got a command, don't eat of the fruit. Yep. And the singular commandment's about coveting, uh, which is considered kind of a gateway. Yeah, sin. gateway drug to sin. Yeah. <laughs> the gateway drug to sin, which, uh, so he got the single commandment, do not covet this tree. And he goes, hmm. So I, you know, it's don't think about a pink elephant. 
and you just thought of it kind of idea maybe mm -hmm. um but interestingly it says that he was deceived now he, adam is the literary figure yes who was deceived but in first timothy 2 he says adam was not deceived but eve was so again lest maybe just for our purposes lest we read too much into him using the literary figure adam yeah I don't think he thinks strictly in terms of um, because he mentions Adam, it's only Adam. Yeah. He's really kind of conflated the two figures here into uh, Romans 7. And there's other extra biblical accounts that kind of also appeal to both or, yeah. or, or just Eve or Adam. Uh, but in... But what you're saying is the conclusion we should draw is that because men are more easily deceived, they ha. should be in church leadership. Ha ha ha. Right. Um, and actually the term deceived is the same yep. term as in... Uh, First Timothy. Yep. So there's that. Anyway. As it turns out, both genders are not uh, immune from deception. Shocking. Didn't realize Paul was an egalitarian. So now getting into the close uh, parallels with the dissimilarities. Um, so verses 15 has once one of these parallels. Uh, verse 16 has another. Verse 17 has another. And it's basically trying to show how Adam and Christ are different. So this is typology. So hmm. Adam is a type of Christ um, in a negative way, of course. Like, yeah. We really don't want to be like Adam. That's the big thing here. If you if you take away anything, you do not want to be like Adam. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be a, who is a type or model of the coming one. Well, you prefer to wait for the one that is on his way, not the one that is present. Yeah, so you don't want to be an Adam. Yeah. Right? Like, so men, no, don't be like Adam. Yeah. Being like <laughs> this, Adam is bad. This is not a be a leader like Adam. No, well, <laughs> no. Well, well, this also plays into the issue of sexual of ethics. Period. Because yeah. Adam doesn't have an ethical concrete area to stand on, whereas Christ is the foundation of our ethics. You know, Christ living, Christ death, Christ resurrection, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, all right. So let's take a closer look. All right. Verse fifteen has kind of this a uh, not like the tra transgression, so also the grace kind of weird scheme going on. And maybe I'll just read it so it sounds a little bit easier to keep track of. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, the one human, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So grace here is probably a reference, especially it's the grace, to the obedience of Christ on the cross. Hmm. So just as one act brought about death, and another one brought about abundance. Hmm. And this grace is also greater than the transgression because it subverts the power of the transgression itself. Hmm. And it positively creates life and peace. I would like, uh, if possible, for you to even think of this not as these distant historical examples, but you can almost you can almost picture someone who's trying to wrong you and kind of that back and forth between the two of you, especially if you're not responding in kind. Huh. God has been wronged. God has been terribly wronged by Adam and by us. And so think about that for yeah. a moment. Uh, God's going to model for us how we are supposed to respond to others. So just as earlier we saw how we're supposed to understand when we're being when we're going through tribulations, frankly when people are doing evil things against us, how we should understand that circumstance in light of what Christ did. Hmm. Uh, when and Christ is the one that died for us while we were enemies. Yeah, we're described as enemies, as sinners, 
we're not in a good state. And <laughs> in this word, it's saying, come on. Like, someone hardly lays down their life for someone who's good. Uh, Christ laid down his life for someone who is evil. So be ready to sacrifice your own lives. And not just in terms of being willing to physically die, if need be. It's how you live. Be willing to sacrifice your, your ego, your sense of self. Uh, endure these sufferings in a new light. Yeah. Endure other people. So going back, this obedience that Christ had even to a cross subverts this wrong that was done against him. Adam acted for himself. People act for themselves and it brings death. Christ, on the other hand, acted for others, and he brings life. And he even rescues Adam from his death. So that's the comparison there. Verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. So there's a difference of result here. Hmm. Uh, transgression led to condemnation. Okay, got it. So you would think that more transgressions would lead to more condemnation, right? So someone wronged God and it had this horrific consequence. And now we all sin even more. And oh no, we've been crucified. <laughs> We're not off to a good start, guys. Yeah. Um, we even crucified Christ. So you would think there's even more transgression. You know, or sorry, even more condemnation for the even more wicked things we did. But... I think the point here is that God's character is very different than perhaps ours is. Um, you would think that God would hold the crucifixion against us, uh, maybe doubly, but instead he uses it to convert condemnation into justification. Hmm. Um, now in 1 Timothy 2, which is interesting, um, this hope of Christ is metaphorically placed in the transgressions of Eve. Hmm. So we have Eve... Um, being in a sense pregnant in verse 15, uh, 215 with the Christ child in her womb. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way that first Timothy kind of um, does something similar with, with, with Eve and transgression. And mm -hmm. that's why there's hope in uh, the thing, the evil things that we do. Um, it's because get, um, God's act subverts even what we intend for evil. What yeah. we intend for evil, God intends for good. So verse 17 for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of the righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So if death gets to rule through Adam's action, then Christ's action has implications too. Hmm. So if we receive the grace of Christ shown by the sign of the Spirit, which is love, we rule in life through Christ. Hmm. And so he says, that's that's the hope there. Uh, something, death got to come from Adam's evil, well, something gets to come from Christ action, and that's life. Yeah, and it's not just a mere reception of the gift of righteousness. It's actually the, the active, the tense form is inactive. It's part, It's something closer, instead of like obtaining or taking, it's participating in life. Mm. And so it's a, there has a, there's a continual ethical standard of, of how we participate in life, and rather than being slaves to death and ultimately destroyed by death as a, as a master, and as Paul talks about in Romans 5, 14. Yeah. I would actually like to read a little bit of Romans 7 and 8 here, too, because I think that will really exemplify the state that we're portrayed as in. Okay. This kind of Adam-Christ contrast. And this gets back to understanding sin as a power. 
too. And again, I'm getting into a little bit of uh, Ephesians language here, um, but in a sense, we're under two. We can we can choose to be under two different uh, dominions. So let's see, Romans 7, 19 through 20 first. For the good that I want to do, I, this is, okay, so in, in my, in the way I'm going to portray this, this is like, this is where you are if you want to be under Adam, if you want to keep resisting God, if you want to keep acting for yourself. For the good that I want, I do not want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. The point here is, you can almost think of it as an addiction. Like, are they really making, do they really have volition? They're trying to choose for themselves, but do they really, um, who, who's ruling who, in other words, Yeah, I think is, the, is more of the point here. And so 24 and 25, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So again, this is part of uh, Paul saying the inadequacy of the law. You know what you should do, and so you show evidence that, yes, the law is good. Yeah. He's trying to show, yeah, I'm not trying to say the law is evil, guys. Um, I agree with you on that. I'm just saying it's inadequate. And this other paradigm I'm giving, this other ethical imperative, which is uh, based in love as the sign of the Spirit, is what should be the ground. So 8, 1 through 4, and 9 through 11 gets into freedom and life. 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the sin of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then 9 through 11. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So again, I think based off of what we read earlier, if you're not manifesting love, watch out. Like get, un commit yourself to God immediately and change your life. Hmm. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so that gets, again, back into that future hope. That's he. Paul does not separate ethics from doctrine. Hmm. The two are intimately intertwined. He doesn't separate physical life, literally resurrection from the dead, from character formation. Hmm. Life in Christ means that you res get resurrected the way Christ did. Um, it also means that you're formed in suffering. It means you're formed um, by living life. Okay, so now ready for the summary and the kind of the next part before we get into the conclusion. So then, as through the one transgression, this is verse 18. So then, as through the one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. That's, again, all humans. For it is through the one human's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Okay, so there's here's our cup recap. And so now for the grand finale, this conclusion of the triumph of grace that we saw the implications of earlier. So it's kind of, you can maybe even see from the rest through the lens of what's to come. Mm -hmm. So see the future uh, hope of God 
our, our hope is based on God's future kingdom. Mm. And so we see even our suffering from that vantage point of the end or the telos, you could say. So verses 20 through 21, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So earlier we were enabled to see suffering and trials through the lens of Christ's reconciling work, and that's enabled, you know, by in us by the Spirit. Uh, now we are, you know, fast forwarding to that end um, where the sign of the Spirit love was pointing towards all along. So see it as a in the Johannine language, see it as a sign hmm. of the kingdom. So sin does not rule in death is one of the ultimate messages here. Yeah. Uh, grace is the one that reigns in eternal life and righteousness. And so God's death on the cross brings about, in my language, maybe in Old Testament language, maybe um, even extra biblical language, shalom. Um, it's the life characterized by not, not just, uh, it's God's shalom, again, is that all-encompassing peace and prosperity and um, character formation and all the good things. So yeah, it's, 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 not the just, it's the abolition of conflict. Yeah, bringing about um, physical well-being with spiritual, with quality, with character, um, bring all those things together, and that's the end. that is our end. And we we also can't forget that righteousness, dikaiosune. We also can't forget that righteousness or dikaiosune also has often an ethical component as well. So righteous, the righteousness of God tells us about the character of God as well and the ethical demands of God as well, which. We kind of miss out when we just impute it as justification. It's like, well, yes, there's also justice and equity involved in this, as well as ethical categories. So it's it's a much broader thing than just talking about just being justified before God. It's like, well, that includes ethical, you know, standards as well. There was this kid at church today that summarized summarized this so well. I was just like, oh my goodness. Uh, so words of wisdom from a kid at church. Uh, he learned, don't be mean to people because God is a good guy who makes people good. So Sounds I was just like, right. whoa, okay. So number one, don't sin. Number two, why? Goes against God's character. And then three, there's hope for you because of um, number two. So way to go, kid. Yeah. I, I put this up. I tweeted this at live in church. I was like, oh my goodness. That's really good. Yeah. So some like, here. here's maybe a possible... Before we get into our gender discussion, here's a possible thing you can think of, um, even for your own life. I, I think this whole paradigm of Adam and Christ is, in a sense, r repeated within us sometimes. Um, sometimes people that are under the influence of darkness, because um, in First John it says that our world is under the power of darkness, um, and I mean, as agents of the kingdom of God, we're going to clash. Um, it's a power struggle. Um, maybe even like the Egyptians running after the Israelites. Um, Yahweh parted the sea. They saw that, but they thought that their gods would protect them. Or maybe their gods were really the ones that could part the sea. Yeah, maybe their gods were the one doing this for them. And here's the thing, like, sometimes there's people, they see you, they, you're imaging Christ, and rather, they, they think they want that, or maybe sometimes they think that, in a sense, they, they have them put themselves up as, as gods, and by you existing the way you are in your character, in whatever it is, your skill set, uh, your gifts, your talents, 
they think I need to destroy that. Otherwise, the image I have of myself is threatened. I want to say, as they kind of, even if they try to destroy you by destroying, you know, the image of Christ, I think this is an opportunity to evidence, for you to evidence the spirit in love. And this is kind of what I think Romans 5 and uh, Romans 12 were getting at. Because Christ's death on the cross subverts even their twisted intentions and gives meaning to suffering. And I also think that on our part, uh, the love of God that's poured out in our hearts also compels and beckons what I've termed in one of my recent uh, blog posts called Resisting Evil Part 2 on the Iconoclast, is that us manifesting love can kind of beckon even an iconoclast forward, someone who wants to destroy the image of God by destroying us. He can either keep ironically destroying himself because he's not living up to his vocational calling to love God and love others. That's why we're here on this earth. So in trying to destroy the image of God in you, he's actually destroying himself. Um, I think he can either end up destroying himself um, by not being in Christ, or, you know, maybe ultimately surrender to the living God who gives life. And thus, either way, <laughs> grace wins. All right, and uh, a lot of people, well, actually not a lot, I couldn't find a whole lot of people actually arguing for this, but I found one or two, like to use Romans 5 as arguing for what's called Adam's federal headship, which is odd because headship isn't used in the passage. Yeah, did you hear headship anywhere? Nope. Uh, I didn't see Kefali used federal. at all, or federal, or anything like that. And I think even a few people flat out just admit it. Yeah, it's, an, it's a heuristic device versus something actual in the text, which I'd be fine with, but it's not actually argued that it is. It's more just kind of assumed. But, uh, and this can kind of be represented pretty nicely by Ray Ortland's chapter in uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I'm just going to read a snippet of it. And he's uh, chapters on Genesis 1 to 3, which is kind of weird because Genesis 5, or Romans 5 doesn't seem to have a major view of Genesis. But, but it, and, and to quote him, this is page 107 to 108 if anyone wants to check it out. But if Adam and Eve fell into sin together, why does Paul blame Adam for our fall in Romans 5, 12 to 21? Why doesn't Paul blame both Adam and Eve? Why does Genesis 3-7 say it was only after Adam joined in the rebellion that the eyes of both of them were opened to their condition? Why does God call, call out to Adam, where are you in Genesis 3-9? Why doesn't God summon with Adam and Eve to account together? He does, but you know. Because as the God-appointed head, Adam bore the primary responsibility to lead their partnership in a God-glorifying direction. I would challenge anyone to read Genesis in any translation you want, excluding the biased ESV. Hmm. Uh, even in the ESV, if you want. You're not going to find any of these things. And so, Yeah, it's a, a mistake of reading the Bible. Well, the Bible doesn't say this, therefore this other thing must be true, is kind of the way of thinking. Yeah. And it's reading, I think, a universal into the text a logical universal that doesn't have a logical universal universal and what i mean it's the difference between the text saying adam and the difference between it saying instead only adam yep it does not say only adam adam is mentioned in this text but again eve is mentioned in first timothy and i think eve is a type of christ in first timothy and i've argued for that well, it also kind of, this line of reasoning, Ortland's line of reasoning, it's not just Ortland, but we use him as, as, as representative head of this type of argument. Yeah. Uh, we don't derive any of our ethics from Adam. Like mm -hmm. Adam's fall, the whole idea of Adam's fall is to not be like Adam. So the fact that he kind of puts Adam up on this pedestal means he doesn't have a Christocentric view of the Old Testament or of the New Testament. We do, I mean, Christ, after all, is, quote, the telos, or the perfection of the law in Romans 10.4. And so this line of argument basically ignores the Christocentricity of how Paul reads scripture. And not only that, it assumes 
that um, Paul does blame Eve elsewhere, just not here. Yeah. And, you know, why doesn't God summon both Adam and Eve to account together? He does. I mean, both are equally blamed and both have consequences yeah. for the fall. There's a chiasm there in yep. Genesis with, yeah. And it's just this idea of the, as the God appointed head, Adam bore the primary responsibility to lead their partnership. There's no sort of leadership language in Genesis or here. And if, Yeah, if, where did we get the message that this is this is a passage on leadership? No. It's like, if anything, no. if one wants to be as, as polemic and narrow, this is a great text to show that why men shouldn't be pastors. Oh. Like, I'm uh-huh. serious. If, if one wanted to assume this sort of, uh, of hermeneutic, this shows that as, you know, men shouldn't be pastors because of Adam. Well... Like, I'm serious, like, as Adam sinned, and Adam this, and Adam that, and all these things, you know, yeah. you kind of, it, just the logic is not co- coherent or consistent. Well, how once they you throw it. out the logic, then anything goes, really. Yeah, and here's the thing, too, um, there's lots of similarities between this passage and First Timothy and the comparison of Eve. Yep. We don't really have tons of time, but you, when, what I told you earlier were Anthropos is in view, uh, and not an heir, it's that same Anthropos language is all over First Timothy, yep. too. And again, the, the big complaint I have on how people interpret First Timothy is they divorce that whole section from the the, the high Christology that's all over the place. Yeah. Um, and even in First Timothy, you also have the human one who saves everyone. There's even similar themes in there. You have access and hope in Christ. You have the love of Christ in the heart. You have the ungodly have hope in Christ. And we went back to that metaphorically, um, Christ is placed in Eve's womb. Mm. And here's the thing too. You have you have that telos. You have that, you remember when Romans 5, 5, um, where it was, that key was about the love of God being poured out within us and the hearts via the Holy Spirit. Mm. Well, 1 Timothy 1, 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that's Paul's whole point here. Yeah. And it's repeated even in uh, chapter two, where he goes back and says at the very beginning, he wants everyone to lead a quiet, tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. It's that same word uh, for quiet that's repeated to the women later. Yeah. And not only that, Paul uses the exact same sort of language in Romans 16 at the end. There's, of course, yeah. textual issues with Romans 16 as well, but we can't get into that now. But just reading from the NIV, Romans 16, verses 17 to 20, just, just as a way of kind of summing everything up. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. So we can already see the sort of, you know, false teaching being in view in, in Ephesus and First uh, Timothy or elsewhere in Paul's epistles. Uh, so this is not new. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Sounds like uh, Philippians 3. Uh, by smooth talk and flatter, they deceive the minds of naive mm. people. Same word for Eve. So it turns out everyone can be deceived. And so, piv- yes. and so this, you know, thing where... You know, and everyone is described as deceived in another passage, yep. too, other yep. than First Timothy. Was it Second Corinthians, I think? I think it's Second Corinthians 3, uh, 11.3 3 or something, something like that. Something like that, yeah. And so it basically shows uh, the old idea of women was that women are ontologically more gullible or dece- or easily deceived than men. And that's actually been argued uh, early on in early complementarian literature. Here, Paul says they deceive the minds of naive people. And so it's, there's no like genderedness involved in this text. Everyone is can be easily deceived. And so everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise 
about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So it's a great little end of, you know, the kind of an allusion to the Eve story, but also the Proemangelion of Genesis 3 as well, where yeah. Satan is crushed. Here, here's the thing on Eve in the other passage, Second Corinthians ten three. But I, and this is for the whole church. Ten three or eleven three? Or uh, yeah, sorry, eleven three. Eleven three, okay. Three and four. Um, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and devotion of to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this You bear this beautifully. What boggles my mind is you have all these passages that are about, are very ethical. It's telling you not, it's telling you to empty yourselves, essentially. It's mm. telling you to surrender yourselves to Christ, um, to sacrifice your own life and your own bodies for the sake of others. Um, in First Timothy, it's even told, you're even told not to lord, or okay, there's an echo in there, um, going back to another passage in Mark, telling you not to lord um, your power over others like the Gentiles do, not to exercise authority um, the way they do. Not And in First Timothy, it's about specifically not taking authority upon yourself that's not yours. The false teachers weren't just teaching the content that was wrong. It was their attitude, too. They're yeah. self-aggrandizing, they're prideful, they're arrogant, they're trying to assume the pride of place all the time. It was an ethical failing. Yeah, and so all these passages are trying to get us away from that. And somehow from these passages, we get this interpretation that men should be the ones in charge. We need to keep, it, it's telling women they can't be in charge. That's it, the opposite of what we're supposed to be learning yeah, here. It, it just, it mess it utterly destroys the idea of, of Christian anthropology, theological anthropology, because it assumes a different ethical standard for men and women. When Christ is a telos of the law, everyone is who is in Christ is new creation, full stop. We derive our ethics from Christ and his witness and his life and his commands in scripture. Yeah, don't appropriate passages that are speaking against taking and assuming authority for yourself and self-aggrandizing and pride of place and use them to try to have that power for yourself against other people. Big mistake. <laughs> All right. And so that's our bit on Romans 5. Yeah. So what did um, Romans 5 have to do about gender? Uh, nothing. 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 Yay. Yay. That was great. So, <laughs> but there is another section. Go home. That, yeah, there's another section in Romans that does have a lot to do with gender, and that is chapter 16. Well, maybe Paul wasn't thinking about gender when he wrote it, but yeah. since we have issues, it will be very meaningful. And we'll discuss Romans 16 next time.